Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about a very interesting topic, sexomnia. But before I go in depth about today's interview, uh, I wanted to thank all of you guys who wrote us reviews on iTunes and Stitchers during the month of January. January was our third year anniversary, and many of you guys showed me love with writing wonderful reviews. Some of the people who wrote reviews are LG Reviews 23, AT Mora, Julius9283, Eddie Good15, Express Angel, Hum Fafu, SD Lindley, Simali, Lo Shu2, Big Jimbo 316, Mama 8888, Lauren Frank, Jesslyn 89, and many, many other people who wrote us reviews. Thank you so much. Your reviews help me to keep going because this this is my passion project. Uh, I have a full practice. The reason that I'm doing this podcast is just purely to support people to expand their education when it comes to sex and sexuality. And all of these reviews that you guys are writing, it helps this show to reach a broader audience. Uh, So thank you so much for that. If you didn't get a chance to write us reviews, this would be a fantastic time to do it. I would be very, very grateful. And you would help a greater community by helping us to reach more visibility in iTunes. Anyhow, today we're going to talk about sexomnia. I don't know how many of you guys heard about people saying they had sex while they were asleep. I certainly had several people talking about it. I was super skeptical until I saw a brief article about it in my psychology of sleep class during graduate school. So it was stayed in my mind, but I had tons of questions that how common it is, who are some of the people who are vulnerable to this? Is this something that a perpetrator can use to get off not facing the consequences? That's why I'm so excited to have a psychiatrist who has specialty in treatments of sexomnia tell us about his experience with treatment and tell us a little bit about what are some of the cases that he saw in his practice and give us a little bit of information about the forensic aspect of it. Our guest is Dr. Amir Mohebi, is a proud Iranian-American currently completing his psychiatry residency at San Luis University. He trained under mentorship from world-renowned forensic psychiatrists, doctors William Newman and Brian Holoida, whom co-authored a review related to his interest in sleep medicine and forensic entitled Sexomnia as a Defense in Repeated Sex Crimes. Dr. Mohepi is a proud Iranian-American currently completing his psychiatry residency at San Luis University. He trained under mentorship from world-renowned forensic psychiatrists, Dr. William Newman and Brian Holoida, whom co-authored a review related to his interest in sleep medicine and forensics entitled Sexomnia as a Defense in Repeated Sex Crimes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Amir Mohepi. Mohepi. 
Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Amir Mohepi on our show. Dr. Mohepi, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very, very excited about this topic. I didn't share that with you, but I, I've been looking for someone to talk about sexomnia for a while because what happened is one of my side interests is sleep psychology. I know that's your specialty. Yeah. <laughs> and that's definitely my personal interest because I always had issues with sleep. So in graduate school, I took this class on psychology of sleep. And there was this chapter on sexomnia. The professor never talked about it like anything else related to sex. <laughs> no one yeah. brought it up. No one discussed it. But I was always wondering if this is a real thing. What does research say about it? So I was so excited when I saw that this, this is an area that you've done research in. You published in this area. So tell us, what is sexomnia? Yeah, so I can definitely uh, relate to your interests. Uh, you know, I, I think this is a topic that because it's not really well described, uh, it, you know, kind of pops up on everyone's radar. You know, being a student, always the things that are kind of unique uh, stand out and stick in our, our brains the most. But, you know, sexomnia, the, the word actually uh, was, it came from a research article in 2003 from uh, Colin Shapiro before it used to be called sleep sex. The more clinical term that they were using was somnambulistic uh, sexual behavior, which basically just means sleepwalking sexual behavior, if we, if we were to translate. And the reason that they started showing up in uh, this uh, psychiatric literature was mainly in the forensic context. You know, they were, they were starting to see people facing criminal charges. Uh, and that's where this kind of started coming about when, when we started noticing some issues related to this. Actually, you know, um, sexual behavior and sleep has been described and observed for quite a bit, you know. For, for a very long time. You know, actually, the, the first case of sexomnia was believed to be described in 1875. And uh, that's a really interesting case. It was in England. A police officer found somebody in the street. He thought he was sleepwalking, and the man exposed himself. And, and he actually used this as a defense in his his court that I was sleepwalking when I had these sexual behaviors, you know. So sexomnia was not a term back then, but since then it's been described. Now, in 2013, the, the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual came out with its new edition, the fifth edition, and uh, international researchers decided that they should add this to the DSM under, you know, uh, a specialized form of sleepwalking, if that makes sense. So in a nutshell, you know, that's, that's pretty much what uh, sexomnia is, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say this, this has been going on and for for decades and history in the histories and centuries perhaps because i i understand why it comes up in the forensic realm because even in my practice when i i, I read that chapter and that was the only chapter i read about it yeah. and at times people talking about it like had couple clients mentioning it and you wonder if this is a real thing 
or the partner just saying it to excuse bad behavior. So it's, I can imagine that's really hard to assess. But be, I know we're going to talk about that piece. But tell us, is, so it, this is a real diagnosis. How can, uh, what are some of the, so for example, uh, what are some of the behaviors that people are showing and kind of like engaging in? And I'm, and I'm not sure if the research looked into it, but the case you mentioned, it was a case of exhibitionism. So is it that the person would be doing the behaviors that congruent with their sexual template or the cases are like at times like someone's doing something that's not necessarily with their sexual wrap? Yeah, I mean, those are really good questions, you know. So I think uh, part of uh, the answer to this question is, is just looking at sleep in general and what is the purpose of sleep. And I think, you know, since Freud and his interpretation of dreams that we've been very fascinated with what is sleep, what are dreams, why do we have them, you know, definitively we don't have an answer for this. There are a lot of theories, uh, and, you know, some of those theories have to do with consolidation of memory and uh, Sex is a very big part of our lives, you know, and so it would make sense that, you know, we would have dreams related to this, and especially with the hormonal fluctuations, things like that, uh, you know, and we, we know that men wake up with erections, you know, it, this is common to, to have that. Now, sexonia might fly under the radar because if you, you're sleeping alone, you might not know that you're doing these things in your sleep. The reality is that for thousands of years, people have been dealing with sleep issues, you know, uh, narcolepsy, uh, sleep apnea. These are things that they probably existed back then as well as now. You know, it's just we're a lot better at observing these things now. And with alcohol and drugs, you know, that definitely kind of complicates the issue. But with advancing technology, during sleep studies, we, we have so much data available for us. You know, we're able to look at brain waves. We're able to uh, look at the different muscle movements, respirations, oxygen level, and video to actually, well, you know, watch people to see what's going on when they do sleep, you know. And we can track the different stages of sleep that they go into. And it's really interesting that when people are in these very deep stages of sleep, there, is, there are a percentage of people that they will have some sort of sexual behaviors. Now, sexual behavior is pretty broad, right? Uh, so for, you know, our purposes, you know, it could be anything from sexual talking in your sleep. It could be from, you know, making noises like, you know, grunting, moaning. Some people actually, they masturbate in their sleep or, or pelvic thrusting, or they might grow up a bed partner or something like that if they have it or their pillow. You know, those are, those are really common behaviors. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when you were talking about kind of underlying kind of factors, it made me wonder that is there any psychiatric condition, any physiological things that makes us more vulnerable for kind of struggling or developing the sexomnia? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because absolutely. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that they may be dealing with a sleep issue. You know, uh, here in America, we're dealing with the epidemic of obesity. Unfortunately, this does relate to things like obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, in obstructive sleep apnea, your brain is not allowed to progress through different stages of sleep. And then later, it'll try to make up for that and just throw you into these deep stages of sleep where some of these behaviors might come around, right? In addition to that, we know that things like concussions, traumatic brain injury, 
they can actually cause people to have narcolepsy-like symptoms. In fact, uh, 30 to 40% of people with a traumatic brain injury have a sleep-related disorder. And we can pick this up on the polysomnogram. So those conditions really make sleep issues really, really common. You know, overall, though, in the general population, it's about 3% is what we would expect for sleepwalking in general. And for sexomnia, it's about, it should be about the same. You know, we haven't been able to really kind of pin that down. But, you know, there, there have been studies where they've looked at people who were referred for a sleep study, and they found that, you know, in fact, in one study, uh, that they found that sexual behaviors in sleep were more common in adults than sleepwalking, you know? And this is what we know about sleepwalking is that it, it generally happens more when people are younger and they kind of grow out of it based on, you know, how the brain changes. Now, with the uh, medications that we use nowadays, you know, like antidepressant medications, different kind of sedative or hypnotic medications, these also alter our sleep patterns, unfortunately. You know, you mentioned that sleep had been an issue for you personally. Uh, and as a psychiatrist, I mean, I, I got to tell you, like 80% of my patients, they got a sleep issue. And we're talking about, you know, uh, what's going on with that. And that being said, that, you know, we're really bad with sleep hygiene, being on our, on our phones, using technology in the bed. Uh, all these things kind of play a, a role into that. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors are prone to throw uh, certain medications to help people get to sleep. Unfortunately, those medications, they do cause us to have altered progression into our different stages of sleep. And that would make you more prone for things like sleepwalking, for sure, or sexomnia. Well, I love that you talked about helping people with the improving their sleep, because again, this is, <laughs> this is my lifelong uh, struggle. And I, I read a lot about it. And what I understand with sleep, you can address many of the sleep issues that you have purely behaviorally, whether it's like sleep hygiene or sleep restriction model, like using with therapy, CBTI kind of thing. But you're right that sometimes people are seeking for quick fix. And this quick fix just kind of contribute to this struggle of not being able to get a sufficient restful sleep. So for people, for example, if someone gets a sexomnia diagnosis, what would be the treatment like? Well, it depends on the underlying cause, okay? If it's something like sleep apnea, then definitely there's different ways to treat that. You know, actually weight loss is the preferred thing. You know, 10% of your uh, losing your body weight, you can improve your symptoms 30 to 50%. A CPAP is like 90% to 99% effective. But uh, CPAP is not a sexy thing. You know, if you're a young person in your 20s and your 30s, uh, you do not want to be uh, sleeping next to your bed partner connected to a machine. Mm -hmm. That's just not really practical, you know. Unfortunately, it's, it's helpful, but it's not really a convenient. Now, dentists have created these oral devices, which are great. I, I you know I actually I love these things. I wish the insurance would pay for them more. They're just as effective as uh, CPAP. And so like head to head, maybe uh, CPAP is a little bit better at controlling respirations. But uh, overall, from a clinical standpoint, in, in terms of uh, observable uh, measures and symptoms, the oral devices work just as well. And how they work is that they just bring your lower jaw a little bit forward uh, and they keep your airway open. Uh, of course, some people are, are candidates for surgery, 
you know, I, I personally had to have surgery for my sleep apnea. They had to create a bigger airway for me through my nose, my throat. Now, if it's something that's uh, medication induced, we would we would change the medications definitely. Now, sexomnia isn't something that should be debilitating, right? It's not something necessarily you need to be treated for, right? But people should be aware that they have this condition and they should, you know, be responsible, right? So if you are having bed partners, then you need to let them know, right? And, you know, uh, where people get in trouble is, for example, you know, um, it's the stepfather who is sleeping with, uh, you know, a stepdaughter or stepson or, or stepmother, you know, whatever. And these behaviors come about. Well, if you know you have this diagnosis, it's really kind of up to you to make sure that uh, you're being responsible in that regard, you know. But just like sleepwalking in adults, we don't really expect people to be sleepwalking every night, right? It should be a really few and far between kind of event. Well, it's interesting that you said it's not necessarily cause like major distress, but I would imagine that like if that was a case for me, I would be worried if I'm like attacking people at sleep, am I assaulting them, but I don't know what the degree of it. Or imagine you're going to a conference with a coworker and like in sharing the room and that would be uncomfortable. So I can imagine that that also can kind of increase people's struggle with being falling asleep, re- remaining asleep when they have bed partners. But I think there is a significant difference between whether if, if the behavior is your moaning or saying, talking things or even kind of some body movement versus if you are acting on this behavior with a partner. And I know that's where the kind of forensic assessment comes. And I'm kind of curious that how often people are using this defense and what are the success rates when people are using this defense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's real, those are really good questions. Just to, to circle back here a little bit, you, you're right that definitely the behaviors themselves are, are going to be important, whether this is uh, distressing or embarrassing. You know, for example, like, a, you know, loud moaning, for sure, that's going to be something that, like you said, if you're sharing a room with somebody. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hopefully most people are kind of aware of that before those kind of situations. Now, I do want to point out that sometimes actually those behaviors are desired in the bed partner. You know, they might, uh, they might think that this is uh, something that uh, they're enjoyable, that the partner's into them, right? Other, other times it could be something that's annoying them, you know? And this is something that, that, you know, it's really so individualistic that we can't really generalize there. Now, that being said, uh, you you know, you kind of segued into the legal issues, right? Since this has been described and out in the literature more, we're seeing it a lot, a lot more coming up in the criminal courts. Mm-hmm. Now, how this came on my radar actually was, uh, you know, I also have a very uh, big interest in sleep myself. And what kind of uh, brought sexomnia on my radar was actually following uh, sleepwalking cases. And there's some famous cases in England involving sleepwalking and murder. You know, they call it sleep-related violence. And there's this case where allegedly uh, this man, he drove 20 kilometers and killed his in-laws with a shotgun. And uh, and the courts uh, found him to be not guilty. Oh and they said that sleepwalking 
was the case. Now, this was kind of against conventional medical knowledge about complex motor behaviors in sleep. And, you know, so following those criminal cases led me to uh, discovering that some of them can be sexually related. And in Canada, there have been a, a few cases that there was 10 cases that have been described. Five of them made national headlines. And uh, since then, we're seeing that this is being used a lot more and uh, lawyers are actually very, very skeptical of this mm-hmm. diagnosis, right? And it's unfortunate for the rare people who do have this issue, but it, we are seeing it probably used more than it, it should be. And it's coming out at different stages in the criminal proceedings. You know, most often we're seeing it, people trying to use this during appeal. You know, they've already been charged with the sex crime, for example, and then they're appealing at different stages and they may try to say that, oh, the original court uh, made an error because they have this diagnosis that was, you know, not brought into court. It's new evidence, things like that. That is so interesting. And I wonder, as far as the success of using this kind of a strategy, legal strategy, because as as you can probably imagine, it's as a part of my practice as a psychologist, I've been trained in doing psycho- psychological assessment, psychiatric evaluation, and all of that. And I wonder, what are some of the evaluation that can show that someone is this, beha- that behavior was product of the uh, kind of a byproduct of the sexomnia. Is there any kind of a psychiatric evaluation for that or just like a previous history of kind of maybe sleep studies and those information? Yeah, I mean, so we, we take in a lot of information here when we do these kind of forensic evaluations. There, There is no test that we have that can absolutely tell you that at the time that these alleged offenses occur that sexomnia was happening we just we just don't have that information right and so that's what makes this really really challenging when you're called as an expert to kind of talk about these types of cases right now sleep study is the gold standard for making the diagnosis because you know we could verify with the brainwave testing that somebody is in the deeper stages of sleep we can look at the muscles and we can see that they're having these complex motor behaviors. We can watch them on the video. But unfortunately, just like, you know, uh, diagnosing seizures, that just because you don't capture one during uh, the time that you're recording doesn't mean that it's not happening, you know. And, and especially something as rare as sexomnia, where we don't expect someone to have that every night. Uh, and so what we do is we have to look at everything. And uh, sleepwalking and sexomnia are largely clinical diagnoses. You know, does this fit the pattern that we have observed in all these cases that we've been studying for 200 years? And that is really, really important. Our evaluation may uh, involve, uh, you know, interviewing bed partners current and previous bed partners. Uh, It's things like reviewing medications, going over to see if there's any drugs and alcohol involved, things like that. And, you know, we do have other tools. I'm sure you might be familiar with the 
tools that we use for things like malingering, like uh, the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory uh, type two or the MMPI two. That definitely is useful because it'll help. It'll help us tell us if someone is exaggerating or feigning symptoms. And you know, from a psychiatric perspective, um, uh, working with my co-author Dr. Holoida, who's a uh, an expert in sexually violent predators. We also do uh, evaluation for pedophilia and um, other types of kind of sex offender evaluations uh, when we're when we're kind of conducting these types of investigation to see if you know it, what are are we seeing is this something that is in keeping with the person's character or not. Uh, and that's what made our research study kind of interesting for us is because, you know, going through these cases, we imagine that the people who were accused of doing this more than one time would be very unlikely or there would be some kind of negligence there on their part not to inform their, their bed partner or not to take steps to prevent that from happening again. You know, if you if you did sleep with, uh, you know, your stepdaughter and something like this happened one time and you're blaming it on sexomnia, well, okay, you know, that makes sense if you, you might have that diagnosis. But even if you did have the diagnosis, to let it happen a second or third time is, is very suspicious. Mm-hmm. And I love that you talked about kind of like the taking responsibility for the things that are within your control, which is talking to the bed partner versus kind of kind of using the diagnosis or, or kind of talking about the diagnosis, feeling helpless around it, because that's what I'm trying to say. The other thing that I keep wondering and thinking about is as, as similar to the case you mentioned with the person who drove several miles and murdered people. It's mm-hmm. like so many different brain function that takes in kind of is involved in executing some, something like that, that it just makes people kind of like wonder about whether it's possible or not. And I, I would imagine with sexual behaviors, again, there are things that are more simple as far as like brain functioning. And there mm-hmm. are tasks than sexual behaviors that are more complicated and complex. So is it possible, like, is it usually around kind of like acting out with a, a bed partner or engaging in some kind of sexual experience with the bed partner or it's like you had the cases or you heard of the cases that people went somewhere and assaulted someone and they got they they claimed or they have sex omnia yeah um so again it's kind of it's so variable i I do want to point out that sex omnia is kind of like a a very broad category Mm -hmm. okay it's describing sexual behaviors in sleep but it can arise from multiple different causes. It's kind of like autism spectrum disorder in that regard, okay? You know, in the the DSM, they're, you know, uh, kind of pinning this down to the non-rapid eye movement part of sleep. But I do want to make mention that this really can happen at any different kind of stages of sleep. Okay. Uh, for example, in in um, Parkinson's disease, these patients, unfortunately, they have a problem in their during their rapid eye movement sleep. You know, we call this uh, REM sleep behavior disorder. 
Okay. And based on the, the part of the brain that's being activated, you're going to see different complex behaviors. And of course, motor behaviors are a part of that thing. You know, it could be things like kicking your legs out in your sleep, punching, talking, but it can also be things that are sexual. Uh, similarly, people who struggle from things like epilepsy or who have seizures or who might be uh, abusing drugs or alcohol and have seizures in their sleep, they can exhibit these behaviors. You know, essentially what a, a seizure is, is a discharge of electric activity in the brain. If that electric activity happens to occur in the part of the brain that involves certain motor functions uh, or different parts of the brain involved in sex, then we can definitely see this. And in fact, the sleep doctors who are the, the experts on the subject, they have well described many cases of patients with epilepsy who have seizures in their sleep and who have sometimes things like a, what they call an ictal orgasm. Ictal is a kind of a, the, the term we use clinically to describe what's happening, you know, the time during a seizure. And it's really interesting that, you know, you can have an orgasm as a result of the seizure and that that can happen in your sleep of all places. The person might not even be aware of that, you know, because during a seizure, you have no memory of what's going on. You're not in control. You're not conscious of these issues. Your body is kind of, you know, experiencing this as a result of this increased electric activity. And it happens that we may capture this when we're studying these people for other reasons during a sleep study. Now, we did talk about drugs and alcohol, and I do want to point out that sleep medications like Ambien, they are very, very highly implicated in sleepwalking and and in sexomnia, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about the sleep-related violence. There have been cases where, where people have gotten in trouble the, with the law for doing things that are disinhibited, you know, maybe things like breaking and entering, and it's because they were under the influence of something like Ambien combined with alcohol, and they're kind of stuck in this sleep-like, dream-like state which they they might not be aware of what's going on in their surroundings, you know. But, you know, just kind of on the, the most minimalistic form, if you have a sleepwalking disorder and part of your sleepwalking disorder is to have certain sexual behaviors, again, we would expect that to happen, you know, really once in a blue moon. Okay, you know, we don't really expect that to happen once a year, really, for these people, because what we know about people who suffer from just sleepwalking is, again, that usually by the time they're an adult, the brain makes certain changes where they, they grow out of it. Well, these are very fantastic and fascinating findings. And I know for one, you opened my mind to this diagnosis because I was very, very cautious about when people were making these claims. I understand that you're also saying that this is not a common diagnosis, but there are cases of people who are struggling with it. And the, even the better part of it is that 
there are solutions that they can kind of seek and treatment that they can address the sleepwalking and the sexomnia piece if it's causing the distress. Because you're right that perhaps if they are in the context that it's not disruptive to their life or perhaps it's helping their uh, kind of sexual experiences with the partner, then that that can be okay or even augmenting one's sex life. I noticed that we are toward the end of our show. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to see if people are, want to kind of get a hold of you, if they want to read your articles, what are some of the places they can go to get access to those uh, materials? Yeah, so the the article is available free online. It's uh, through the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. It's called uh, Sexomnia as a Defense and Repeated Sex Crime. And, you know, in our, in our study, we found eight cases that met our criteria where somebody was accused of sexual offenses that occurred in more than one occasion, and they tried to use a sexomnia defense, and they actually had some sort of forensic evaluation. You know, I excluded the ones that were, you know, didn't get as far as having the forensic evaluation. You know, I, I can also be available through my personal email, Dr. Amir Mohebi at gmail.com, uh, you know, to answer these questions. I do have attorneys frequently reach out to me in regards to, to taking cases for sexomnia. Uh, so it would, it would not be unusual for me to, you know, entertain questions in that regard. But yeah, thank, thank you for having me on the show. It's been a great pleasure. I'm happy to, to talk about it and, and kind of inform people about these types of issues. Thank you so much for coming on, guys. If you haven't got a chance to write down Dr. Mohapi's information, it's going to be on the show note. This definitely was a fascinating and very informative conversation. And we appreciate the time that you dedicated to educate our listeners. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Mohebi. He gave us tons of good information about sexomnia. And at the end, I wanted to invite you guys to make sure you're taking care of your sleep issues. Even if you don't have sexomnia, which according to Dr. Mohebi, most people don't, poor sleep habits, not getting enough sleep, feeling tired is one of the number one reason that I see many, many of my clients and couples are not having good enough sex. They're tired. They're not experiencing arousal just because their body is exhausted. So sleep is an issue for you. There are really easy, tangible way and steps that you can take in order to make your sleep more restful. I I talk about different interventions in my newsletter, which is a weekly newsletter that I email to people. If you haven't signed up to the newsletter, you can sign up by following the link in the show notes. I talk about different interventions related to improving your sexual health on a weekly basis. So if you're interested to learn more about that, make sure you're subscribing to the email and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.